Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Raise the Black. Welcome back to Sailing Under the Jolly Roger. I am Scott McNay, and today I'm joined by Paul Axton. This is kind of a crossover episode between Sailing Under the Jolly Roger and uh, Forging Plowshares. So today we're going to take our cutlasses and pound on them until they're plowshares and join together for a conversation this morning. Paul, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good, Scott. And I, I already, I'm envious. Uh, you got a, you got a, a fancy intro there. Oh, where, uh, thank the, you. You're swashbuckling and, and yeah. building the sword. Oh. I don't even have one of those. I need to, I need to come up with a, with a fancy intro like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it would befit your, your podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. So Paul, you, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. Forging plowshares. We started in uh, 2016. So where mm-hmm. we're 2021. So we've been running about six years now. Yeah. And we do several things. We began here. We have a big old house. So we began just a community of people that were kind of meeting here and we did a community garden. Then at the same time, I began to do podcasts and blogs and we started an online school, Plowshares Bible Institute. And so we put together a full course. We've had six years later, we finished our catalog. So it's not like we're zipping through this thing. (laughs) <laughs> but we offer about three courses a year. Yeah. We've had one or two that have gone through. We've, we've got, and so you get certificates. It's interesting. The people that have ended up taking classes, it's been a lot of preachers and pe- most of the people that are, well, everybody that has taken classes with us mm. have had college degrees, very often theology degrees, not always. Yeah. Most of them have graduate degrees. Hmm. We've had people with PhDs. So, <laughs> wow. I mean, all stripes. That's yeah, great. Uh, so the, the courses, they're geared toward a kind of graduate. People that are doing this and are engaged in it, I think, have appreciated a lot, have appreciated our conversation. Yeah. And when COVID hit, things here at the house, we haven't met, you know, hmm. since COVID. So, yeah. Um, PBI Plowshares Bible Institute, and then the Forging Plowshares part of it. So we've had you know book clubs and various things but, that we do, but most of it it's o- online. Right. Absolutely. Good deal. Well, it was about man. I, I think it's back in 2006 through 2008 that I was attending the college that you taught at, and while there. My time there was really redeemed by your classes that I took. And one of the themes that would come up in just about each of the classes that has stuck with me, it has stayed with a lot of sermons will have this theme in it, but I think it directly impacts the way I do funerals is the idea that humanity has an orientation toward death. Would you mind explaining that for us, Paul? Well, you know, first of all, this, I think, is the center of my understanding of what 
the atonement is about, what Christ mm. is about. Not to say that this is everything. Right. But the negative aspect of what we're being saved from, that is, how do you define sin? Mm -hmm. And I think we've tended to define sin as an act, you know, dancing and smoking. and. <laughs> uh, but, of course, in Scripture, it's, it's a system. It's a, it's yeah. a holistic understanding. Yeah. The beginnings of it, I think, are there in the Genesis story that is mm -hmm. going to be the reference point yeah. for the rest of the Bible. In other words, yeah. uh, when as Paul, for example, in Romans is describing what sin is, whether it's Romans 3 or Romans 7, he's making reference back to the Old Testament and primarily to Genesis 3. And there, yeah. then, the idea is that there is this orientation, you know, that you won't die, there's the lie but you'll be like God. So that's the biblical part of it. Right. The uh, other aspect, and actually what got me into this, was I was mm -hmm. a, a missionary in Japan for 20 years, mm -hmm. which yeah. we share that, uh, that yeah. you were also in Japan. Um, yeah. Yeah, as we've plotted backwards, not knowing each other officially uh, before 2006, we may have been in the same room in the 90s in Japan to see Fiddler on the Roof at CAJ. We oh, can't yeah. Confirm nor deny that, but it could have happened. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Continue on. And in Japan, there was a psychoanalyst, uh, Takeo Doi, who was one of the premier. Uh, explainers of what is in Japan called Nihonjin Rome. That is, it's explaining to Japanese what it means to be Japanese. Being a good missionary, I wanted to figure these things out. And Doi uh, writes a book called The Anatomy of Dependence, or the idea of Amai, or Amayadu. Ringing any bells? Um, I, a little bit. I was in high school. I kind of had some other interests, unfortunately. <laughs> so I wasn't always up on uh, on this for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I can't imagine that you'd be thinking about anything. But uh, yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and he is a Freudian psychoanalyst. His uh, okay. teacher, in fact, had studied with Freud and was part of the import of Freudian psychoanalysis into Japan which uh, is usually a kind of unknown feature. You know, you don't think of Western psychoanalysis playing any kind of hu huge role in Japan. Right. <laughs> but it, it had been there. And, of course, Japanese are not lent to going to psychoanalysts or therapists, though there's a, a profound need, obviously, because of mm -hmm. the high suicide rate. But anyway, Doi is picking up Freudian psychoanalysis and explaining to the Japanese all things Japanese through Freud. Hmm. The key term, of course, is amai, which is just dependence. It is a, a characteristic that you see in Japan. It, it is a kind of passive uh, dependence on the mother. And mother or the feminine plays hmm. a key role in Japan. And this is part of what Doi is explaining. To make a long story short, which is not really a short story at this point, but uh, <laughs> he is taking Freud's death drive. Mm -hmm. He's reversing it. 
he's okay. using it. In other words, Freud came to this understanding uh, late in kind of mid-career with, first of all, with uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle and then mm -hmm. the superego and the id, he, he develops his tripartite self. His whole notion of what, a, you know, the forces at play are going to shift from eros or a kind of mono-instinctualism to a dual instincts. And that, for him, uh, the sex thing, a big deal for Freud. When we think of Freud, we always think, oh, it's all about, it's about sex and it's about the Oedipus complex and all right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, actually, Freud became unhappy with mono-instinctualism. He poses this second instinct, the death drive. Hmm. And this then is the inauguration of an alternative understanding the, hmm. of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, we don't get so much of it in this country. So if you mm -hmm. go study psychoanalysis, and, and I, which I've not done, right. but most people are going to say, oh, we don't do Freud anymore. But of course, at some level, everybody, just the very foundation of the science right. is Freudian. And sure. it is based then on a kind of ego psychology. That right. is, it's based on the first half of Freud. The right. only people that are going to, that it's on the continent and in France primarily, that they're going to pick up on the death drive and they're going to develop a whole therapy. Hmm. Uh, Jacques Lacan is the key person in this. There are other people. Uh, but right. he's one of the key persons to pick up on the death drive as kind of a centering factor right. in what it means, uh, mm -hmm. the role of death in the individual. And I'm saying all this, that is that two huge things are converging. Mm. Yeah, That is that there is this biblical understanding right. that, that I think is huge. I just, you know, I just think it's everywhere. Right. That has in some way been missed. And, right. and missed is the wrong word. You know, did everybody miss it? Right. Well, it'll show up in, but not sure. as, not in the central way theologically because of bad theology. Right. So in penal substitution, in Augustinian original sin, because right. of these moves in Western theology, there has mm -hmm. been a shift in focus away from describing mm -hmm. in a practical way what sin is. Yeah. So what my understanding is, well, what the, the theologians missed, the psychoanalysts have picked up. And Lacan right. was aware of this. Mm -hmm. And right. he says, well, I'm just, you know, he actually turns to Romans 7 and he locates his theory in the Apostle Paul, mm. especially Romans 7. And in right. this country, maybe the premier interpreter of all things Lacanian is uh, Slavoj Žižek. Okay. Žižek, uh, in certain circles, is kind of like the rock and roll star of that. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of the wild man. Uh, right. And very popular on on college campuses, and you yeah, know, always there's always a crowd. Part of the part of the problem with Zizek is his popularity, because people have dismissed him. And so, the my work, uh, what I've done in my book, 
in my uh, dissertation that the book is based on, I've broken this down that actually Freud, Lacan, Zizek, if you layer those three, uh, you're going to make sense out of each of them. Zizek's kind of fascinating because he's always describing these things with these kind of penetrating insights. Right. You're never quite sure where it's coming from or, you know, how he's doing this. And, of course, my point is, well, he's just Lacanian. I mean, that's what he would say about himself. He's just right. reading Lacan. And what Lacan would say is, yeah, but I'm never doing anything but Freud. Hmm. And so to understand what is taking place, I think Lacanian theory is quite insightful. And it is focused then on what we're talking about. Right. That is, what is a human being? What is the driving force in a human mm. being? As I say this, uh, we need to, to point out that Lacan and Zizek are atheists. Right. Oh, good point. Yeah, we should make that point. <laughs> that little minor thing. Right, absolutely. So any positive notion that we would bring into this from Christianity, right? they're not going to bring that in they're just describing what a human being is without god or without that yeah. understanding mm -hmm. and so in terms of the bible and this is their own understanding mm -hmm. that they're going to read paul's romans 7 mm -hmm. as kind of the beginning and end of everything Zizek does some stuff with six and eight but otherwise he's really focused and lacan does the same thing you right. can read their whole theory into Romans 7. Or re another way of saying that is you can read their whole theory into the depiction of what sin amounts to. Right. And in this understanding, I think it's a theological development that is mm -hmm. applied in a, a kind of therapeutic way right? Uh, in a kind of diagnosis of what the human condition is. In other words, Freud is just dealing with sick people. Yeah. And Lacan, they're, they're true doctors. They're trying to heal people. And step one in healing people is what's wrong with you? Right. And the, the focus then becomes, well, it is this negative thing, this negative force. You know, why do people hurt themselves? Why are people masochistic? Why do they compulsively destroy themselves right and, and so what they're describing is what also what the bible is describing what is this destructive force mm -hmm. in human personality and human civilization right freud is big you know i'm not saying he's correct but he boy he just is all inclusive yeah. in his description of civilization and its discontents and you know what's the human sickness in a sense, there's, there's no great mystery in right. saying what's wrong. Well, what's wrong with people is they're destructive. They kill one another, uh, they're violent, and they are destructive to themselves. Hmm. And why? That's the question. What is the anatomy of human violence, of masochism and sadism? Why okay. do people hurt themselves and others? Or to state it, in different terms why don't people love their neighbor <laughs> uh, yeah uh, and right. 
And the answer, I think, is in the biblical depiction of sin, understanding sin then as this orientation. You know, what is sin? What is it that's taking place in Paul's depiction of the problem? Right. And he is going to describe then this orientation to the law Mm -hmm. or to, and what he means by the law, you know, it is just this universal symbolic order that is death dealing. And what is the resolution to that? Well, it is to displace that orientation with new life in Christ. Hmm. Right. Absolutely. That's a long answer to you. That's well, it, it takes a while to get to the punchline sometimes. And that's important is, is the due diligence. I think in the church world, I was talking through with uh, someone about this the other day. A lot of times we talk about sin as this or the relation between sin and death or people's understanding of Genesis three or the problem that exists, which is a, a misreading of the text, which is, don't sin or you die. And by die, we mean roast in hell. And that's like the whole understanding. I mean, that's that's what we're all trying to avoid. And it's too late. We've all sinned. So we need atonement so we don't fry. And again, when you drill down on the Bible, that's just not there. So once we get and we start dealing with this orientation toward death, that by evading death, we make matters worse. We're self-seeking. We easily discard or destroy others. Is there on the other end of the spectrum, though, the kind of person that says fine, or is that just another level of avoidance of death is to fall in love with death? Yeah, there's a there's an, any number of ways that this thing, the orientation to death, and I've always felt that the language uh, in describing it may be inadequate, you know, that we've sometimes used, I've sometimes used, picked up William Frazier's understanding, but Frazier is actually, I think, calling upon other people, and that is that you can call this death denial. That doesn't exactly get it in Mm -hmm. that, well, it's not that you say that death isn't there, because you do have some cultures and some understandings in Japan that would be one of them. And which is not that you're saying you're denying the reality of you're going to die, but you're changing that reality. That mm-hmm. is, you're going to make death a kind of absolute, but you're going to turn it into a positive thing. Right. And so think right. I just think the Genesis story is the key here into the human psyche. You know, whatever you think of those stories in Genesis, how, however you regard them, and this is the interesting thing, even, even among in psychoanalytic literature, they've turned not because they, they believe these stories are in some way historically true, but they're reflective of what's being discovered in psychoanalysis. Right. And, and that is that you can take this negative thing, this you know death, and you can reify it. You can make it an absolute. And you can reify it or make it an absolute in any number of ways, ancestor worship, you know, oh, you don't really die. The ancestors are already there. Uh, you can do it in a philosophical way. This is Hegel and Heidegger. They're literally taking the category of death as an absolute and saying we can orient, we, we bring this negative aspect, you know, tearing with the negative to a recognition of the truth of reality. Mm. 
you can do it in uh, in a more denial sense, and that is to say, you know, as we do in American patriotism, that we can literally take, you know, this was World War One. that, you know, what you'll find written on the tombs is of, of soldiers are Bible verses talking about that the person has died in Christ, as if the violent death of a soldier is yeah. what Jesus meant in taking up the cross. Right. So there can be a blatant denial of the category mm-hmm. in ideas of innate immortality. Mm-hmm. You'll get this in both philosophical understanding and in uh, religious uh, religious understanding. So yeah. Plato is going to say the soul is immortal. The soul is a little piece of God. But all Plato is doing is reflecting pagan religion, which yeah. is also going to talk about some sort of innate immortality. Right. So when the language, I don't know how to capture that in a yeah. phrase, that this orientation to death, but the idea is that it is uh, death is in some way made an absolute, either through denial or through reification. I mean, there has to be an interaction with Jesus' words to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, not in a soldier-like misinterpretation, but in a acceptance. How does that play off of that then? So take the soldier, you know, did he lay down his life for his friends? Did he lay down his life for his enemies? Did he, you know, what happened? Well, he went out to kill people. He went out to shoot people. He may have been shooting people to save his friends. Yeah. You know, there is that aspect. Of course, none of that's what Jesus meant. Right. And what did he mean then when he says, take up your cross and follow me? Well, he means that with him, quite literally, he's not going to resist going into Jerusalem and facing those who would kill him. Right facing the ideas, you know, the, the powers, the principalities and powers, this is what it's described as that he's defeating these principalities and powers. What is the power? What are these principles that he's taking on? Well, I think it's clearly there in his confrontation with the orienting factor, you know, what can the state do to you? Well, the worst thing they could do to you would be put you on a cross, right? And so there is this sense that the orientation of Christ is not resistance or, or denial in the sense of, you know, running the other way, but right. he's going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to take up the cross. And of course, there's, I mean, just a basic fear element here that Paul in Romans and the writer of Hebrews, but also elsewhere, right. that sin is always caught up in fear. And that's the way the writer of Hebrews describes that we are under the fear of death. Yeah. And that too, that needs some translation because I don't know that any of us just go around shaking at the idea the prospect. Oh, that some people do. Some people literally are afraid of, and of course at the point that we're dying, it may be that we're gripped by that fear. But I think even more than that, that the thing that Jesus did in taking up the cross willingly describes then our own attitude toward understanding that this thing is not an absolute. It is not the controlling factor. 
in our life. That is that people can, uh, they can kill you. Yeah. But that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. Yeah. This is the power of resurrection. Absolutely. Resurrection power then is supposed to be a a reorientation that we are able to face this reality to not in other words death is no longer the controlling reality yeah and by death we mean all the things that go with that yeah that is what is jealousy what is envy what is hatred what is violence yeah well there is a sense that they're all a part of this kind of zero-sum game that we're describing yeah once you can do undo the anatomy of that negative orientation What we're describing and taking up the cross, we can understand, oh, that's connected to an ethic. That's connected to the ethic of love. I can love my neighbor. Yes. I can afford to do that. I can afford. Ooh, I like that word afford. Yeah, maybe. I haven't used that. That is good. As long as you're in a zero-sum game. Yeah. There's only so much stuff to go around. Yeah. It's kind of every man for himself. Uh And that's kind of the desperate circumstance that I think we put ourselves into in our drive to establish ourselves in our greed in our, you know, I want to be somebody. Yeah. Well, what we're trying to do is gain life on our own terms. But what we have in Christ in is that life is freely given to us in Christ. Yeah. Well, I think there's this idea uh, in the culture that we are limitless or how do we push as far to our limitedness, limitedness that we can when you couple that with the fear of missing out, the fear that someone else has a better experience out there and I'm not doing that. I'm missing out on something or just the idea that there are 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. The idea that we could neglect our family our church our neighbors the poor i mean why on earth should we make time for them there's not enough time and if everyone collectively just grabbed their bootstraps we could just move along because i only have so much time on this earth and i want to squeeze every ounce of it for me and maybe a couple people around me because i like them And so we move from individualism to tribalism. And and that's just as far as it goes, because it's not an outright, I'm terrified to death. It's an acknowledgement that I have so much and I'm going to spend it on me. It's my orientation with death on the horizon. It's a deal I've made Mm -hmm. rather than the resurrection freeing me up to realize it's in my limitedness where value comes from and joy comes from and raising kids can be incredibly inefficient in life. Yeah. Why would you do that? The power of those moments being together Mm -hmm. when things go well, when there is success, even in the midst of failure Mm -hmm. without the resurrection, I think it's difficult. And I wouldn't go far to say impossible for some people out there because they do it. And I'm not going to argue with that, but incredibly difficult to move toward any kind of cross-bearing. Yeah, I know you've described it beautifully. In fact, the term that you use, you know, that people over there, they seem to be having all the fun. Yeah. 
they have all the enjoyment. They have all yeah. the stuff. Yeah. And in some way I got left out of the party. Yeah. There is a specific name for this in psychoanalysis. And this is, you know, jouissance. Jouissance is this, uh, this kind of evil thing that Lacan and Zizek both recognized. You know, that's really behind racism. You listen to Zizek talk about racism. Really? You know, the, the, those dot, dot, dot. Right. You know, you can talk about it simultaneously as a, a kind of derogation. Think of uh, Jimmy Swagger <clears throat> yeah. preaching, railing against homosexuality. Yeah. You know, kind of sweating and, you know, boy, them dirty homos. And, of course, what we find out is, yeah, well, that was the thing that he was doing, you know, yeah. or, you right. know, illicit sex. I lose, I lose track of my preachers and what they've done. Right. But, yeah, I understand. Uh, but it's the, the same thing. In other words, the yeah. thing that they're most against, Yeah, that those dot, 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 and they're railing against, yeah. is very often the very thing that afflicts them. Yeah. And so that is, that is a depiction, not just of bad preachers, yeah. but it's a kind of depiction of the human condition. Ah, yeah. That we would all then, oh, you know, if I could just get on in on this thing, I've just missed out. So there's yeah. step one is that human desire is always a desire for, it's always an impossibility. Yeah. That is that if you can obtain it, well, that's not what you desire. The thing that you desire is the unobtainable. Yeah. That's behind the exponential desire that is there in idolatry. But I think it's also a description of the dynamic at play in this jouissance or this, in, uh, you know, you can't, this unquenchable desire. Yeah. What does desire desire in Lacanian terms? Oh, just more desire. In other words, desire. Mm. And here they get a little ambiguous because they're going to say literally that desire is the life force. Mm. I think we could do better than that. In other words, uh -huh. okay. we, we need to recognize, oh, that is a problem. And we're all, mm -hmm. we, we suffer from this thing. Yeah. But we need to, to understand the dynamic at play and not fall into it. Mm -hmm. uh, Lacan says, never give way on your desire. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what is being described in scripture is in fact, a reorganization of the human person right. in, in such a way that this drive, you know, that what we're calling death drive that mm -hmm. Paul calls the body of death, this drive to obtain, you know, what is it you want? That's always the big question. You know, what do you want? Well, yeah. it's hard to, I want the stuff. I want the life. I want being, I want substance. So there's a kind of ambiguity, even in our own drives as yeah. to why or what it is that we want. Right. And of course, the idea is that, well, what we are made for is this participation in who God is, the love yeah. of God in Christ. That is that we're made for what in the Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, is theosis. We're made right. for participation in the Trinity. We're made for love. Yeah. And not a love of this kind of selfish, consumptive sort, Yeah. but the love that's, I think, given to us and modeled for us both. Yeah. In other words, it's there, it's there in Christ. 
he is the mediator. I yeah. just, I don't know. I've just done a couple of things with Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer. Yeah. I think what they're ultimately describing, you know, these guys both faced a situation in which they see a complete collapse of the church and really almost of Christianity. Mm. Yeah. Um, that is very similar, is it, Scott, yeah. That yeah. to a situation that we're living through in which this thing ain't working. Yeah. You know, the church yeah. is part of the, it's complicit in yeah. the evil. As yeah. not, I'm I, not equating. I was Go ahead. listening to uh, the Holy Post this week, and Sky Jatani was interviewing Alan Noble over his new book, think it's you are not your own that's coming out in october and on page three there was this uh he asked him about a line he had written uh which was if everyone in america started going to church very little would change yeah yeah and that's just a gut punch to i let's take it back to desire or even that sense of limitedness uh in not accepting that we're limited which i think Christians struggle with as much as everyone else uh, and shouldn't, but do we are, are just left just as unsatisfied, just as much anxious and even worse yet, we have another dimension to be worried about. Maybe we're not spiritual enough. Maybe we don't have enough spiritual decor in our office, whatever it is. Unfortunately, we then have web pages dedicated to seven ways to be holier about this and three ways to be a better husband. And and I wouldn't discredit all of it, but man, it looks like the magazines you see in line at Walmart, just with a bend toward scripture or spirituality to them. And they're just as vapid. They don't carry substance and they keep us coming back to the question of why am I not good enough and, and needing this mediator, this desire that's just unquenchable with this really consumeristic edge to it. You're describing Bonhoeffer's turn here. Mm. He talks about worldliness in a, in a good fashion. In yeah. other words, that he, he literally says, you know, let's give up on the project of being a priestly type, of being a saint, of, of being something that, you know, in other words, what he's describing is this idea of an identity. And he says, no, the point is to be human. And we're missing out on, on our humanity in, you know, false understanding or a false notion of identity. And so both Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer talk about worldliness in a positive sense, not in the negative way that the scripture mentions right. worldliness. But that is that our tendency... And, you know, we can, you can describe this in two ways. We are always in, we're always departing, you know, in a kind of heaven oriented Christianity. I want to mm. go to heaven when I die, but there's also the sense that we're also always kind of departing from the immediate situation mm. in that, because in a kind of using the situation to obtain, or let me use a different language in the language of shame. That in, a, in trying to establish ourselves, in trying to be something, there is the sense that we're never going to turn to the person in front of us or the situation in front of us 
that establishing ourselves is in some way always a departure from the immediate, from the now, yeah. from yeah. earth, from worldliness, from yeah. embodiedness. Right. And, and you can't love people unless you're there for them. You yep. can't love people unless you're present for them. And of course, our, what we're describing are people that are always hiding out. That's the shame condition. We can never, mm -hmm. in, in a sense, be in the present moment yeah. because of, well, we, we don't have it and we would obtain it if you'll follow these 10 steps. You know, mm -hmm. and I think that's what you're describing. Yeah. Uh, well, no, really, we just have, you know, we have to just be human. Yeah. Uh, our goal is not to be God. Yeah. If you're listening and you're Eastern Orthodox, the, the idea of theosis, I think this is true to theosis. Yeah. That is that wh who is Christ? Yeah. And this is both Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer. They're very Lutheran in this, and this is the good side okay. of Lutheranism. They're going to focus on the humanity of Christ. In okay. other words, this is Luther's phrase that God died on the cross. Yeah. What he means by that is that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, and you can't separate those two things. You can't mm -hmm. divide out the divinity and the humanity. Right. And so in following Christ, it's not like we're going to depart up into the air. Mm -hmm. It's that we're going to become incarnate. We're going mm -hmm. to become fully present. We're going right. to become embodied. Right. In other words, our problem is we're disincarnate. Right. We tend to float off from the situations that we find ourselves in. You yeah. know, if, and Bonhoeffer describes this, you know, in life together you're always looking for the perfect community the actual people that i have to deal with they're pretty troublesome if i could just shift it you know switch yeah. them out for a little better company yeah uh, right absolutely go better <laughs> and yeah so his, his point is yeah the the notion of an ideal community is what destroys community mm. and so i yeah. i think that's what you just described yeah and with that i mean we could then pull in wendell berry i mean this idea I, I just whenever I read Wendell Berry, it's just a matter of living close to the ground that when we build hierarchies in the world or in the church or we just gravitate, man, we gravitate to this cheap Gnosticism. We don't really want to be here. And our technology lends itself to not having to be here. We can always be uh, dwelling with the stars. Yeah, uh, we can always that in other words, pop culture is is going to play a similar role for us in japan you know what we call personalities okay uh they they got the stuff you know they're yeah. they're enjoying the stuff uh, they got the being this this plays out in our lives i like uh, wendell berry i think <clears throat> i i really like wendell berry yeah but i also think we can overdo this thing you know hey sure. i got a i got a little garden in my backyard too Yes, uh, but we're not going to all, in other words, that we're not going to all end up being uh, small farmers and right. going back to the land. But I think yeah. the idea behind that is correct. Yeah, and that is that we do need to find ourselves in in a kind of grounded situation. Mm. Yeah, as you know, I preach out in a little bitty church. Yeah, and I just love it. I you know yeah. because these people have been there their whole life.
Yeah. Uh, it is a Wendell Berry-ish kind of community. Right. In which uh, that's good enough. Yeah. You know, what we are, te- mm. our tendency is, you know, I just need to, I need to escape to uh, something bigger and better. Mm. Well, that pursuit will just, it's just endless. It's never enough. Right. And I think your warning is fair. This isn't everyone because Christians, it's more popular than ever for Christians and Americans to form a mythic past that it's the rural type that are real Americans or real Christians. And it's the city folk that are the problem. And we do that. I just as clearly with the white Christian experience is the average experience. And and unfortunately, I mean, what a misreading, what a fabricated ideology uh, when it's not even native to to white culture. And this is problematic with our understanding. It's so limited and narrow to understand urban Christianity is crucial. Black Christianity is crucial and moving through all of these and normal and average and has a history. And we could learn so much from that history that if we only make it this experience, which I do get to enjoy. I, again, I kind of have the same rural experience that we love it here and we love our kids running and biking and having a good time. But that's not everyone's story. Yeah, that no, you said that well. The you know this is a this is true in Japan that the whole folk culture and there, that actually you get the focus on that and the discovery of that with the shift to the modern, and mm-hmm. so that 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 those two things almost always come together. That is that part of what the modern is is this positing of the primitive. That's the understanding you know that we we've got now in the this deconstruction of both of whiteness you know as you mentioned oh the average white person well uh, that actually is very much well the only reason the only way you have whiteness is through the particular history that we've passed in which there is that construct over and against blackness which has been pointed out again and again oh those are america that is peculiar to this country the history of slavery that there were no white people prior to that people didn't yeah. come to this country thinking oh you know if you're italian or you're they didn't come thinking i'm white they came yeah. thinking i want to be part of the mainstream and what that came to mean was not being black but being white and what mm. it meant to be white was not being italian not being you know the particular ethnic identities that we came with and yeah. so that became a kind of another another construct that we would mm. find ourselves in this yeah. is you know that, that that can just repeat itself and of course here the black white experience i think is the prototype mm. of what in the bible is paul is deconstructing in jew gentile mm. uh slave free you know he does this he's saying well that's mm. no longer the way we do identity is in and through this kind of dialectic and in mm-hmm. through these constructs. Yeah. The the idea that you have uh, an essence in being Jewish. Well, what is that? Uh, mm. Well, it turns out that circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing. Yeah. And that is a depiction then 
of mm. that that is a deconstruction of mm. ethnic racial you know you can just take that all the way that the bible yeah is the place in which deconstruction begins yeah yeah and i think i mean ephesians to- 2 is just these two groups hated each other and there was a wall and the cross came to destroy that and bring reconciliation. I think that's got to be the the best chapter. I just keep going back to with teachings and, and preaching and whatnot, because it, it seems to have so much to say for our current moment. Yeah. The dividing wall of hostility, that is a necessity in that mm-hmm. way of doing identity. Yeah. And of course, what Paul is saying, that's the law. Wait a minute. Uh, it, what it, what role for the law? Mm-hmm. Paul is doing away with that dividedness, that Jew-Gentile mm-hmm. dividedness, male-female, slave-free. That's no longer the way we're doing identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that doesn't mean that, that it's going to obliterate male-femaleness. There's right. categories. Correct. Yeah. But that is no longer the basis for an identity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, this conversation's been great, man. We'll have to do this again sometime. <laughs> this was fun, Scott. I'm glad. Yeah, we could absolutely. Do it. I, uh, I, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have, uh, I'm gonna have Matt Welch on. We're gonna talk about the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oh, great! Or Greek great. Orthodox Church. And oh, uh, I'm glad you got. I Matt has been on on a lot of our podcasts. I don't know that he loves doing it or not. Oh, okay, got it. It's duly noted, and then treat um, him gently. Yeah, I got it. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I think in a couple of weeks, uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to do a baseball episode. So it's going to be a lot of fun. You got to do uh, Japanese baseball? Well, not yet. I haven't read up on Japanese baseball, but we'll get ready for baseball postseason here. And then uh, I'll be reviewing Dave Bentley Hart's uh, The Perfect Game. Because that's probably my favorite article by him. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, so, he I, surely he knows about uh, you. Got to have wall and the chrysanthemum and the bat. I'm sure he does. I I think it even comes up in that article. But he references Japanese baseball. Yeah, he, he talks about how the Japanese are are amazing because they can walk away with a tie, but in America, it's a battle to the death kind of a deal. Oh yeah, no. In Japan, it's the uh, how much gambaru, how much you've endured, and it's the yeah. spirit of the game. It's yeah. the you know, it's not the score at the end of the game. Yeah. It's it's the the you know how much you've uh, invested. In. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.